0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles back to Isaiah again, please. Isaiah 4. Isaiah is not for the faint of heart, but trust God has made you stout of heart in the faith. You can understand the Word by His Spirit. It says in chapter 4 of Isaiah, And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a covering. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. Chapter 5 Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out his stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hands. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished, and their multiple I'm sorry, and sorry, in their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend. Into it, that is into Sheol, whose mouth is opened. Verse fifteen, people shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and judge who is holy, and sorry, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust." because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar, and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed, swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals broken. Whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent, their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely. And no one will deliver. And that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Okay, wow, that's a mouthful. Let that sink in a little bit for a moment, please. I would like to invite those of you that are listening, if you have uh, access to contact information for me, in particular I'm thinking of a text message or uh, a WhatsApp message, I would welcome you to send those uh, questions in if you have any. Uh, If not, uh, we'll take some from here as well. Uh, The the, uh, faithful few in the audience here... (laughs) Uh, Those that are able to come out, not saying that you folks listening aren't faithful. Don't read it that way, okay, or hear it that way. So, yes, uh, we have, I know we have one question here, we have one here. So go ahead, John. right yeah okay so the question is about Isaiah 4:1 uh, to put it as John did it seems like a judgment uh, verse in a unjudgmental context in a happy context so what's going on with that um, so my first suspicion John uh, would be, I wonder if the big four on your page should have been moved down one verse. Yeah. So, um, if you go back to chapter three where we were this morning, you, like, I was struck by the, the judgment that's listed in, uh, after the condemnation of oppression and luxury and, and how God says that He's going to take away the finery. So everything that the, uh, in, in, in this case, the princesses, the women, enjoyed all the finery, the anklets, the you know, the, the jewelry and perfume, and all these things are going to be taken away. Instead of a sweet smell, stench. No fancy sashes. It's just going to be a rope. You're not going to have nice-looking hair. It's going to be baldness and all this sort of stuff. It's you know, it sounds it's pretty rough, especially for the ladies here. Um, you know, guys don't care so much if they're bald, I suppose. But uh, uh, that, that, that's an awful sentence for the ladies. <laughs> so, um, and it seems like beginning of chapter 4 simply continues that mourning and lamentation of 3.26. Um, so the negative part of this, in that day seven women shall take hold of one man. The idea is that the men are so wiped out. There's so few that there are rarity of uh, seven, seven to one ratio of women to men. So uh, they want to have the protection and the name and, and uh, be in the household of one person. And so it's indicating the great devastation that has occurred uh, in the nation according to uh, the word of the Lord and this judgment. And then, as often the case is with the prophets, you have a word of renewal or a word of hope immediately after, so it it is a little bit of a stark contrast from the one uh, to the other, and you have that even within uh, within a single verse. Uh, I'm going to see if I can dig up this uh, verse. It's in uh, is it in 60 61 of Isaiah. He says uh, this it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me to Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has anointed me, I'm sorry, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Sounds like a nice context. And then in the middle of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. And then back, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and so on. So there is a judgment element that is you know you could almost say uh, inserted into the middle of that uh, nice uh, gospel sounding section there so i think that's really what's going on you have that harsh transition between judgment and uh, restoration and perhaps a misplaced chapter number which is sometimes uh, does occur i, I kind of wondered about chapter four entirely because at six verses it is kind of a very small, different than the rest of these uh, chapters, which are a somewhat greater length around here, but we don't get to redo that now, so we're stuck with what we have. Okay? Alright, I know somebody else had a question. Uh, you want to ask that now, Naomi? Uh, the verse that you were looking for is in Matthew 16.24. You say, how did, he, how did he know that already? <laughs> well, she asked me the question before. Just ran it by me. Let's try to take a crack at it. So Naomi's question is: What uh, regarding the phrase to take up the cross? Uh, Matthew sixteen twenty-four, also Mark chapter eight, and Luke chapter nine, have references to those. So most of the gospels. Um, the question is: What is the significance of taking up the cross in light of the fact that Jesus had not died on the cross yet? So what is the Historical understanding of that passage, of that saying—I'll say it that way—of Jesus when he said it, when he said it, because now even though let's let me just pause and just put a pause button on that question. Remember, Matthew was written to a church audience after the events occurred. It was not written immediately when Jesus said the words. It may have been written in the 40s, 50s, 60s A.D so it was written to a church to help them understand i believe what it is that the apostles were teaching that here's the old testament the messiah is predicted the sufferings and the glory of the messiah and now uh like the apostle paul when he went into many cities in the book of acts it tells us that he preached christ to them and he said he preached the messiah and then he said this jesus who i'm who i'm preaching to you now is that same guy is that messiah and so the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would help the local churches to see, okay, this is what did happen with this Jesus and look at how He fulfills these prophecies from the Old Testament. So the prophecies of the Christ and then the fulfillment of, uh, of that in the, uh, were in the life of Jesus. And so they would have the benefit of having that whole historical record which the apostles saw with their own eyeballs now had to be recorded in writing for the churches so that they could have it. For they didn't have a, they weren't going to have apostles for very much longer. Uh, we don't, so we have to have it in written form to be able to make the connection from this back to that. So they, the first readers of the book of Matthew might not have, might have seen this, and the cross to them would be after that symbol on our wall here. Became a symbol of life instead of a symbol of death. Makes sense. Okay, but now the question, particularly, is I'll unpush the pause button here on the question: Is what is the meaning of this to the disciples who heard Jesus say it? Now I'm going to solicit any of your input now on this. I've talked enough for this second here and give you a chance to give me some feedback. What is? What do you think the answer to Naomi's question is, I don't see anybody coming in on the WhatsApp with any questions or answers yet. So, yes, Jansen. yeah you know I should have the you should have the microphone back there because that that was a good answer. Um, let me try to just give the substance of what jansen said so despite the fact that what we just said, the audience would have been familiar with what a cross type of death was. Uh, it was not unfamiliar to them how people died I mean what a cross was and how people died on it and so that would evoke many thoughts in the Hearers, the Lord is saying something about taking up a cross. A cross is something that we know is only exclusively used to kill criminals. And um, so that's what Jansen said, basically. Okay, I don't, I don't want to put more words in his mouth than he had. Anybody else? So what if I said um you know take up your electric chair and follow me take up your seat in the electric chair yes sir well, I think is a that's right So the, uh, the, metaphor, the metaphor of the electric chair fails to some extent because it only covers one aspect of the cross. That is, it covers the death aspect of the cross. The metaphor is made more complete by the fact that the criminal was required to carry his cross, at least the cross beam, perhaps not the upright, but at least the cross beam, to the execution so he carried his own instrument of execution to the place of execution so that makes that metaphor all that much deeper and richer that he had to take up the cross and follow so they would understand somebody taking up the cross means they've been condemned to die they have to take up the cross they have to go to the place of death so what does that mean for a disciple of Jesus in the context, let me read again. Jesus said to His disciples, Matthew sixteen twenty four, if anyone desires to come after Me, in other words, if anyone desires to be a disciple, that's what it means to go after him. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. What does it mean to deny yourself? Now, I, I want to color in the, 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 the picture here a little bit, color in the lines, hopefully, that um, your cross is not your trials, okay that's not a complete enough definition of the cross we I think we had uh one of the songs tonight, some of the trials, the cross, and what was the word? Cross and uh, afflictions or something to bear when somebody says you know well my cross is you know some health difficulty or my cross is some relational thing or something like that that's highly incomplete very much a small subset of anything of this idea the the real idea is even different and that is you're denying yourself your life and you're saying my life is over it's now it now belongs to jesus I am denying myself, turning away from myself, taking up my cross. I'm done. I'm as good as dead. I'm identifying with Him who went outside the camp, bore the reproach, bore the shame, died for my died for sins. Now, of course, they wouldn't understand necessarily all those allusions I just made because this is said before the events happened. But certainly the readers of this would understand that as they finished reading the book of Matthew. Let's put ourselves in a context of a person in a situation of persecution. Say you're in a majority Muslim nation and you've been confronted with the gospel and your family is fundamentalist Muslim to the max. What are they going to do to you when they find out that you have converted to Christ? you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to follow Christ or am I going to follow the ways of the majority religion in my country? Well, that's when you're going to have to deny yourself if you're going to follow Christ. You've just given up your life. You're done. You may you may, in fact be done. You may in fact lose your life because you have become a follower of Christ. Many, many persons have had to... Follow Jesus under those circumstances. We in the West, you know, the highly cultured, very sensitive, nice West in in which we live, have been able to exist for long periods of time without that kind of persecution, and that engenders false interpretations of this verse. You know, you, you say, Well, I'm a believer in Jesus, but I haven't I haven't got to the point of denying myself and taking up my cross. Well, like we said this morning, you are not really a believer if you haven't taken up your cross and decided to follow Him and said, look, I'm, I'm, my life is in His hands. I'm His, not my own. So, convenience and peace has allowed us to have a watered-down view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look at what He says, Whoever desires to save his life, this is verse 25, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Look at the contrast there. You lose your soul or you deny your soul and you take up your cross. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels and He will reward each one according to His works. So, this sounds more like a life and death matter than just, you know, a few trials, or that it's an optional thing for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. We either have to decide we're going to follow Jesus, or we have to decide we're not going to follow Jesus. So, this is, um, this is hard teaching for some to respond to or receive rather but I think it's the only real way we can see that text so how would they understand it to get back to the original question the Lord is saying you're you are deciding that your life is over you're 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 if you desire to save your life look I want my life I don't want the lord to tell me what to do some people say or are you saying no I want I want what the Lord wants. I want to be His follower. That's how I understand that idea. That was a life and death matter that He was talking about with them. So, does that, you have a follow up to that? Does that make sense? Yep. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, he says. Remember Galatians 2.20. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. But the idea is that I'm crucified with Him. And Paul later says in Galatians 6, you know, He's been crucified. I've been crucified with Him. I've been crucified to the world. My old man, he says in Romans 6, has been crucified. There's a fundamental... This, this is why you are not of this world if you are a believer. You have been kind of cut off from the world, and you've been brought into a new new situation. You're you're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ. Uh, that's the radical nature of the transformation that occurs. And good to keep in mind that that's what not only what we have done if we not we have done God has done in us. We have assented to, agreed with. But also, that's the kind of thing you're asking another person to do when you're witnessing to them. It's not just like Christianity is a minor add-on to whatever other programs you have. Like, it's just a tweak. You know, a little, a little, in, in, uh, in the computer language or computer, yeah, computer ease, you have uh, programs like uh, a web browser and you have a plug-in. You know, Christianity is not a plug-in. Christianity is a whole new program. It's a whole different program, okay? So you can't just plug it in to what you have and and have the you know the application programming interface so that it can inter- interact with what you already do. It's a whole new thing. So deny yourself, take up his cross, and follow me. And as you know by now, I've said you know before, and we'll say it probably a thousand times again, in the church, it's necessary for us to remind ourselves, that this is, this is the, at the core of what happens in the Gospel. This is not a second step or a second blessing that happens to somebody that they decide, okay, well, now, now I'll do this extra thing. I'll get consecrated, dedicated, I'll receive the fullness, I'll, you know, become, I'll reach perfection or something like that, and then I'll become this. No, this is all that it is. This is becoming a disciple. All right, I've said enough on that. I've learned my lesson about talking too much. (laughs) Today has been a good day for that. Anyone else have questions? While you think about that, give me one second here. All right. Did you think of anything else, <clears throat> Jansen? Okay, the question has to do with Matthew 16.4. Let's read the verse. Um, well, actually, let's read the first four verses. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked uh, that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Okay, Put in a little parentheses after that in your mind. Ouch. That hurts. Uh, he really laid it on. Uh, that's them, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're seeking after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Okay, so the question is, what is the sign of Jonah? Is that the what the question is? Okay, so let's see uh, if we can... I'm just thinking of something here. Well, this doesn't help. Well, no, it does help actually. Go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 38-40. Matthew 12:38 So the question is what is the sign of Jonah Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying teacher we want to see a sign from you But he answered and said to them an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign You know this is the same book right I wonder if they remembered that they already asked this question before um yeah Okay, they see it seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here's the explanation. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, I think that's the sign, as, as Jesus explains. Jonah was not dead, but as good as dead in that fish. He was missing from the land of the living. He was MIA. Uh, he was... The subject of missing persons report, uh, you know, in the Tarshish newspaper or whatever. Uh, I guess they didn't get there yet, so he couldn't be in that newspaper, but somewhere. Anyway, he was a goner three days and three nights, and the Lord is saying, "Uh, I'm going to do something like that. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jonah became a pattern or type if you will or a, i don't like types too much but you know analogy for what was going to happen to Christ now could you have read jonah and understood that or gotten that out no you could not have only only looking backwards with what Christ has said can you see oh there's a parallel there he's in the heart of the earth jonah was in the heart of the fish But the book of Jonah is not a prophecy that the Lord would be in the heart of the earth for three days. The book of Jonah is about Jonah and Nineveh and God's justice and God's mercy and all the things we know Jonah is about, not this. So, uh, yes, that is somewhat of a different question, a good question. Yeah. Any follow-up on that or anybody else? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, Jensen is saying perhaps the reason he doesn't say it again or explain it again in chapter sixteen is he's already said it once in chapter twelve. Now that could be uh, the Lord doesn't have to repeat himself, although it seems as if the. I wonder if the Pharisees really got it. I mean, I think they did because didn't they know that there was a that, that he had predicted? So at the end, remember when they said that. They wanted to seal the tomb because they thought He was going to rise again or there was some idea about that. So they knew about it. But did they really believe that He was going to do that? It's kind of like in John chapter 2 when the Lord talked about the sign of uh, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it again. And they thought, This temple's taken 46 years, and you're going to destroy and raise it up in three days? Because they just didn't get that he was talking about the temple of his body. And that's a powerful idea, by the way, because that is, God was tabernacling among the people in the person of Jesus Christ, standing right there before them. Destroy this temple in which God dwells. Because in him, all the fullness, remember that phrase? All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He's the temple. And he said, Destroy, destroy this temple. I don't know how he gestured, but, you know, he was talking about himself. But they were a bit dull to pick up on that. So, that being the case, why should the Lord give them signs? If they don't understand the signs that are in front of them, if they, he's not obligated to give anybody a sign. He wasn't obligated to give Gideon a fleece, he wasn't obligated to give the Pharisees a sign. Um, You know, he just, he's not under that kind of obligation to his creatures. And particularly when they're not of a mindset to receive it, they don't care. They're looking to criticize Christ, not to believe in Him. Alright, we have other questions. John? So John's question is, uh, when people ask for signs, were they in the wrong? Uh, and, and, the, and the question is he put in a whenever format. So how many times are you thinking that occurs in the Old Testament? Yeah, no, those are good ones. Moses, what, what signs did Moses, he asked for a sign. Did he ask for a sign? He asked for a sign to show others, I guess. Is that what you're thinking of? Like the, the rod or the, the uh, leprous hand? Or, he didn't know what those were going to be ahead of time, but the Lord told him. So, whenever they asked for a sign. I don't, I, I don't know that I could say that whenever people ask for signs, they're in sin, but I would say if God has told you, for example, Gideon, do this, you can, if you're trusting in God, you simply obey. You don't say, "Well, now prove it to me, God. Prove it to me." You're you're putting God to a test in a way, and so it's it is an evidence of a lack of faith in that case. Um, could uh, could Moses would Moses have had to have those signs, or perhaps God would reveal them to him? As the course of events unfolded without Moses having to um, express any doubt or uh, disability to his faith, I think that's certainly possible. So, at least in those two cases, I think there's an evidence, uh, some evidence, that those two men uh, were not acting out of perfect faith. Now, are you acting out of perfect faith and am I? Hmm. Let's be humble. You know these these uh, these men were men of stature in the faith uh, i'm not I haven't achieved that status, and uh, I don't think i I ever will god uh, God be pleased to uh, use us to serve him but so yeah we we probably do things out of a lack of faith a bit more often than we would like to admit. But whatever is not of faith is... Are you familiar with that verse? Sin, where is that verse? We have one answer from the audience. Romans 14. You're thinking of the last verse in the chapter. It says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. I I do take that to be a general principle. And I've, you know, people have asked me, should I do this, should I do that? Ask for guidance and advice. Well, let me ask you this can you do that in faith? In faith toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no, then you need to find something else to, some other direction to go, some other thing to do. Okay? So whatever is not of faith is Sin, and you probably are thinking to yourself, well, I did a few things, I did that. Were those of faith? No. Sin then, yeah, maybe reveals something that comes up in your mind that you have to confess. That certainly could be the case. But I I don't take, uh, just to kind of come back to Gideon, I don't take his asking for a fleece as a sign of maturity or of strong faith. And it is not a model for us to ask God's guidance today. It is not. Some people have used it that way. You know, they'll say to somebody who comes to them, should I do this, should I do that? Well, put out a fleece. Well, what could that fleece be? You, know, you think about some, some test that you could put you know, or some sign that you could ask God for. And um, that's not how God guides us today. We don't, we, don't, we don't receive guidance that way. You, you understand the principles of the Word of God and you know, use the means that God has given. Prayer, ask for wisdom. Uh, ask for advice of godly counsel. And the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Look at the facts of the situation. Don't get all tied up in your emotions. Ask God for guidance, yes, through the, through the means that He's given, but not supernatural means. If God wants to give supernatural means, then um, He will do that. But that's not going to be for today or now. Um, so I know people have things they, you know, well, I, I asked God and He did this, you know, and, uh, well, maybe. But I mean, what would stop me from saying, well, could the devil have done it? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, you don't want to use that as a model for guidance. But that's getting a little off the beaten path of our question here. So let me stop there. Any other questions tonight? All right. Give give me just another minute or two of your time. I uh, wrote back in October, about a month and a half ago, an article that I simply called a glossary of new terms. I wonder if you read that. Uh, it's a bit of a long, longish blog article, but each, each term was defined with a rather short definition. Um, let me give you some of these. Uh, definitions of new terms, I call them new terms. Uh, terms that I've been hearing a lot lately, and although I haven't done a ton of research on them, I am uh, certain you've heard new these terms, term. maybe wonder what they are about. So let me share a couple of them with you. Uh, One of them, a new term that we need to be familiar with, is cancel culture. You've heard of cancel culture? It's defined this way. The practice of withdrawing support for, or canceling, a public figure and company, or company after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. It is normally associated with a company or individual being swamped by critical social media posts on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, it could be associated with a call for boycotts. A targeted person of this technique may end up losing their job as punishment or uh, or offering of atonement for whatever objectionable sin was done. It is a technique used to enforce political correctness and ridicule unpopular opinions. Cancel culture. Okay? That is a tool, technique, that is used to implement what in other societies is simply governmentally implemented. That if you don't toe the line or your social credit score is not high enough or whatever, or you do something objectionable, then you suddenly you know, lose your job and not be employable. You'll be on a blacklist and you'll you know, suffer poverty and uh, stuff as a result of that. Cancel culture is not really a governmental thing. It's a, it's a culture thing driven by big media and big tech uh, today that is making it easier for people to kind of amass a following to criticize someone on social media and so on, cancel culture. Uh, what about uh, this? I put actually, did I put all these in... Uh, I guess I put them in alphabetical order, so it is a bit of a glossary, a dictionary. The next one on my list, communism. Communism is a political philosophy which promotes class war as a means to remove private ownership and capitalist economics. In addition, communism is directly opposed to religious freedom, Christianity, and freedom of thought in general. Okay, that's communism. So the Uh, You have to kind of understand it in the context of socialism um, where, and I'll define that now, I'm kind of going out of order, but just in terms of the order of ideas, socialism itself is a political and economic structure where the means of production and distribution are owned and regulated by the community, not privately. Socialism is typically one step away from full-fledged communism, typically. Typically. Not always, or it's a slow step, sometimes a quicker step toward communism. But you see the connection of two ideas that you have the removal of private ownership and capitalist economics. And in addition, you have the moral and sociological elements of the uh, enmity toward Christianity in particular, all religions basically too. And then... Um, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, all those things are considered uh, inappropriate and unwanted in, in that system. The uh, interesting thing about the history of the Thanksgiving holiday, when you read it, is that the early pilgrims actually did have a commune. They lived in a communal form and they found it to be unworkable. Why would you find that kind of system to be unworkable? Because everybody shared equally in the labors. That if I was a hard worker and you were not, then I could work and you could get half of my effort, you know, half of my crops or half of my chickens or whatever. If I if I was more diligent, and that was found to be a disincentive to hard work amongst the community, and it just was unworkable. That's the problem with uh, communism and socialism. They end up to be unworkable in practice and uh, tend to be uh, what, one, what one person recently called trickle-up poverty uh, in terms of the economics of it. Uh, and our concern is, is, is in part economic. I mean, sometimes we say, well, forget the, forget the economies of it. Forget about taxes and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is we can do what we do in part because we have financial resources to do so. And if those financial resources are reduced, then we can do less of ministry, of less of things, support less missionaries for the Lord. So there is some element uh, of, of of thinking, where that or of the problem that that's important. Often we set that aside and we say, well, just concern yourself with the moral issues. Well, okay, we can do that, and we think, you know, there's a significant uh, hazardous moral issue here, and that is, if socialism and communism don't like Christianity, we don't really want to have anything to do with them as Christian people. Let's just be honest. Uh, let's just be clear. Maybe not honest. <laughs> let's just be clear headed thinkers. If you want to go a full communist route, it's not going to end well for your church or your Christian faith. So just think ahead more than, you know, I want, I want free health care and I want universal basic income and, you know, all corporations are evil. Think the next step. Okay, once you get rid of all that, and you have all your free stuff. Who pays for it? And how does it? And what happens to your church in the end? Do you want that? And as Christians, we value our religious freedom, and we are thankful to God for it. So we we don't want to go down that road uh, at all. Certainly not very far, so that we can continue to maintain the kind of uh, situation that we have. So it may be God's will that. Uh, that kind of system is installed and that will uh, exercise us to greater fidelity to the Lord and purify the church. And if that's what God wants to do, we'll, we'll let him uh, be the judge of all of that. He's, he's in charge. And uh, as one of the songs tonight said, you know, we, uh, we be still, we let God be God, and uh, he'll do his business. So that brings us to the end of our time tonight. I hope that was helpful. Good questions that you had for the first uh, two-thirds of our time together or so. Lord bless you and keep you all uh, out there in the internet world and here at our building. Let's pray. Lord, we close our evening tonight with a request that you would watch over us, that you would cleanse us from every iniquity, that we would be Pleased to know that we are found in Christ and in His righteousness and that before the throne of grace that we are seen as in Him as we read in the early part of our uh, second service this morning that our salvation is in Christ. It's not in us. It's not in our faith. It's not in our frame of mind. It's in Him. And for that, how grateful we are. And so cleanse us, I pray, from every evil thought every misspoken word every uh, bad deed done up till now and i pray that you'll keep us sin confessing people faithfully these upcoming days thank you for the holiday we just were able to uh, commemorate and lord we look forward to remembrance of the incarnation of christ but meanwhile day by day help us to be faithful We pray you'd spare us from a socialist or communist movement coming in to take away religious liberty and the prosperity that we might use for your glory. If it is the case that we use that prosperity for you with a desire to serve in our hearts, and perhaps we haven't used those resources you've given us, and so you've decided you'll decide to take them away. That is, your, that is Your affair, Your business, and we entrust ourselves to You about it. In Jesus' name, Amen.